It is, at long last, the first day of voting in the 2020 presidential election. Early voting begins in Ohio, and there's already a line three blocks long. People want their votes to count. Make sure you get yours to count. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, and we have a full house today. I'm Chris Quinn, and I'm here with Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston, and Chris Wernowski. Happy Tuesday. Don't you love Tuesdays? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got a divine briefing to look forward to, too. (laughs) I hate Tuesdays. I always overdo it on the weekend, and I get up on my bike on Tuesday, and I feel like I'm pushing it through concrete. I hate Tuesdays. So so let's begin our discussion on a Tuesday. (laughs) Did Ohio's Secretary of State Frank LaRose bend on his steadfast refusal to allow more than one drop box in heavily populated counties like Cuyahoga? Jen Cahoon, this came right up to the wire, as I would like to point out, it always does in Ohio. We're always in court the day before we start voting in Ohio. This year was no different. Where did we end up? Well, you know, judging from the spin in LaRose's news release, you might have thought that he he bent on this, but in fact, he did not. He is not going to allow drop boxes or ballot collection sites anywhere except right outside the Board of Elections. He issued these new directives that allow boards to install more than one drop box at their headquarters and to also station bipartisan election officials outside on board property to collect ballots from people. But that's it. No, no extra drop boxes, no library collection sites, no nothing. And I I have to say, I really I got a kick out of this quote from his news release. He said, Ohio voters now have more options to return absentee ballots than ever before, you know, while he was like shutting down the additional collection sites. Well, let's face it, his release, you could, and we did, you could misread it to think that he had bent, that he said, I will, I will allow this outside the election offices. And, and our reporter misinterpreted that to mean, oh, he's going to allow it. So did I. So did someone else I talked to later in the day. No, only just outside. I mean, it was a, it was a sleazy way to write the release and we misinterpreted it. We had to correct it. Um, So he didn't. I mean, in the end, he stuck to his guns. Cuyahoga County, once again, has a much bigger challenge than little counties like Licking County and other places, because there's, a lot more people here to get their ballots. And we already see it. There's a line three blocks long on day one. And if you look at this, so if you want to exercise the option to deliver your absentee ballot yourself instead of using the U.S. mail, your your options are basically going to be going to the Board of Elections to a drop box, like on one side of the parking lot, or or going to the Board of Elections to a drop (laughs) box on the other side of the parking lot or in in the offices, or maybe going to the Board of Elections and handing it to someone. I mean, it's it's like, OK, should I go here or should I go like 10 feet in the other direction? I mean, it's all it does nothing to uh, address this issue of congestion at the Board of Elections. Can I suggest another option? Um, vote Frank LaRose out of office at some point. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's sad is this is this and it always is. It's partisan. This is a maneuver to try and reduce Democratic voting because Cuyahoga County is heavily Democratic. Franklin County, some of the other urban counties are heavily Democratic. So if you make it easier to vote there, you get more Democratic votes. And, and you know, the state is run by Republicans. All the Democrats are howling about this, saying you're, you're squeezing votes. Of course, 
They want it to be easier because they want more democratic votes. I don't know that anybody who's in a decision-making role says, what's the right thing to do? And that's what's so sad because that should be the guiding principle when you're in public office. What's the right thing to do? I would argue that the right thing to do is to allow as many people to help as many people as possible exercise this sacred right to vote. Frank LaRose has chosen to oppose that. And as secretary of state, it's a long line now of people that are trying to impede voting. And this this might not be over, though, Chris, because U.S. District Judge Dan Polster still uh, needs to weigh in. He had given LaRose until noon on Monday to explain why he wouldn't permit Cuyahoga County election officials to go forward with a plan they came up with to set up these collection points at, at libraries. And LaRose's lawyers did respond to Polster Monday saying nothing in Ohio law requires the secretary to allow one board to create out of whole cloth an entirely new off-site voting procedure for which there is no statutory basis. Uh, of course, we know judges have also told LaRose he has every right to, to order extra drop boxes. So uh, but the, the point is, it's within his discretion at this point. But you know, you never know what the federal judge is going to do here. Well, and I also think, you know, Frank LaRose, secretary of states always have their eyes on higher office. I don't see how he survives this. If he runs for anything other than secretary of state, th- this will be the 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 opposition claim. I mean, this guy tried to stop voting. He did everything in his power to impede voting rather than make it more accessible. Uh, I don't think anybody will forget that. And it's going to be very hard for him to overcome it. I said it before, it's really sad. He's a Northeast Ohio guy. He's from Hudson. Usually you get this kind of behavior from the people in the rural counties that hate the cities, but he's a Northeast Ohio guy. He's probably a Browns fan. Okay, <laughs> you're listening to This Week in the CLE. We talked about how successful the Browns were in Dallas yesterday. It's a very exciting time to be a Browns fan. And clearly, the people who own the Browns want to sell some more beer with the celebratory fans and have asked to allow more fans into the First Energy Stadium. Jane Cahoon, will they have more fans at their next home game? Why, yes, they will. Late on Monday, the Ohio Department of Health gave them the go-ahead to basically double the limit that they had. They, they had a limit of 6,000. They can now have up to 12,000 people. Of course, they have to follow these rules where, you know, they have separate entrances for people. They have to stay in their own little pods of, you know, people from the same household. And, you know, there's a bunch of other rules governing, you know, social distancing, et cetera. But, you know, the stadium holds like 67,000 people, but uh, it is definitely, you know, they'll be allowed more people to Get in on this excitement of the Browns winning streak here. Yeah, I just my question on this is if science went into the plan to allow 6,000, 1,500 in each quadrant or whatever, does that just go all out the window? Well, nobody got sick, so let's double it. Let's I mean, do you keep pushing this until you have a breakout where people get sick? What is the actual science behind this? I mean, I. I, I'm, I was just kind of surprised at how quickly this was proposed and approved. So if it works this time, do they come back next time and say, well, let's go with 24,000? You know, do we, I mean, it's just, what is Would you the like end to game? place bets on that, Chris? <laughs> no, but what, what's the end game? I mean, do you keep pushing it until somebody gets sick? And, oh, okay, that's the max. I mean, 
I, I would I would like to think that there is some science going on in this. The weather is going to get colder and colder there uh, as we get deeper into the season. And we really didn't get any kind of explanation for this. They, they sent a letter in saying, hey, we'd like to double the number of people. And the state said, go can right I, for it. Can I add something in? This is Laura Johnston. And one of our reporters, Cameron Fields, is going to be looking all over this, the country today at what different stadiums are doing. So maybe we'll have some more answers there. But I think the science has been all along, right? The six foot social distance. The issue is, do we know that that is going to stop a disease that could be an aerosol, right? So I still think there's a lot of unknowns here. But the Browns were smart in what they did to start with was they weren't just like limiting capacity. They were putting the fans in pods of people that had to buy tickets together who knew each other um, and supposedly like, you know, share a house or, or otherwise involved so that they know that they could contract trace easily or would know that that person is not sick. And then they kept the way that they go in and out of the stadium very separate. So I don't I don't think this is just as blatant as being like, well, let's just double it again. Like I feel like they put some safeguards in in the first part that was more than just limiting capacity. Well, let me push back on that. One, I should you brought up the the aerosol. The CDC has come out finally yesterday and said this does spread more readily in air than we thought. So that six foot thing has gone right out the window. Right. But if six thousand was right before why is it not right now i mean they didn't say we're going to start with six thousand, and if that works we're going to keep increasing it they came in and they said we have a safety plan where we think we can accommodate six thousand. now they come in and say we want to double that based on what i, well, I just we're not seeing the based on what i don't think there is a lot of basis in any of this because originally they said what, 15% of capacity or 1,500 tops? I mean, I, I think literally everybody is just guessing, thinking that sounds good. So you're experimenting with people's lives then. Is it's, That's what this is. Okay, 6,000 work. Let's go to 12,000. 12,000 works. Let's go to 24,000. Oops, we had a whole bunch of people get sick. Okay, too bad for them. We'll revert back. And I mean, I, this sounds terrible, but it's all an experiment, right? They're sending, we're sending kids to school. Yeah, we but don't there's know a that... difference, Laura. For school, it's about education. Right, this no, right. Watch it's more important. Game. Absolutely. This is just entertainment, but nobody's forcing you to go to a Browns game. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? Like, if you want to go to a Browns game, that's that's on you. Can I can I ask a question? So throughout this throughout this whole NFL season so far, we have not seen a significant breakout at any stadium. Is, is that true? Or do we know that? Or Well, we had the Patriots quarterback test positive. Yeah. Right? No, but we haven't seen fans who are but, in the stadium have a breakout that we are aware of. That's what we're, we're assigning somebody to go and do a deep dive into what's going on in stadiums. Well, and, but, but I guess what my concern is, is that the lack of transparency around getting answers as to where outbreaks are starting and where they're coming from, like their contact tracing in this state has been, you know, it, the least transparent part of this whole process. And so, you know, if there is a suspicion that people caught it at First Energy, is is there any indication that we would get a straight answer out of anybody? Well, the brands did say, no, no, the brands say there is no sign anywhere that that has happened. That was part of their their push. Look, but but you raise a great point. The the governor has had committees to go through all of this stuff and approve the safety requirements. There's no transparency in this decision. They just came through with a letter 
said we'd like to double it. We haven't had any breakout, and it was approved. I mean, that I guess I guess what's missing here is any discussion of the science that says this this could work. And it's what Laura said. It's all a big crapshoot. But in the end, the the losers are people who could get the coronavirus. It would have been nice to see a more public discussion about why they're doing this. Anyway, it's- well, and and you kind of leave you know, major league baseball, you kind of left them in alert, you know, it, it's, yeah, they're nobody. The, the Indians have been playing in front of fans the entire time. And, and, you know, it's, I don't know. I mean, open air stadium, the, you know, it, it's, it's probably better than, you know, cramming everybody into the, the progress or into the queue and to watch basketball games. But it's, 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 it's ideal that it's football, but I just, I don't, I just, Where? it just, it just, fills me with anxiety just thinking about it. I mean, my question stands, where's the science? That's, right. that's what's missing here. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why does Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost need a panel of environmental experts to advise him? Lord Johnson, this was a little unusual. He's the Attorney General. He's the enforcer of the laws, the guys that gives the opinions, represents the state. But he's brought together a whole bunch of really smart people from the environmental sciences to give him advice. Why does he need advice? Yeah, so this is going to be a 12-person scientific advisory council, and he wants to, what he says, ramp up the environmental protection section of the attorney general's office. He wants to, quote, build a team that anticipates problems and proposes solutions before any negative environmental effects play out. I would argue that some of the negative environmental effects are already playing out, but hey. (laughs) <laughs> it's nice to start somewhere. Uh, he says he wants this group to be a sounding board regarding the best ways to preserve and safeguard Ohio's natural resource. So the first thing you're going to think of, of course, is Lake Erie and harmful algal blooms. And Chris Winslow is going to be one of the chairs of the advisory panel. He's the head of Ohio Sea Grant, which is, has Stone Laboratory in right near Putin Bay on its own private island. It's very cool. They study lake issues like harmful algal blooms, invasive species like quagga mussels, water snakes, and other things. So, but I don't know, maybe they'll be looking at energy, pollution, and other really you know, important issues. Maybe climate change. Who knows? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, bags. plastic bags. What I like about this is the acknowledgement that, that he's not an expert on this, that he doesn't know what he's talking about when it comes to this, and that there are significant issues, and we know from our own audience, people care a great deal in Northeast Ohio about the environment more and more. I mean, there's more and more clamoring for, for greater coverage of it. So it's nice that he's gone out. And I mean, you know, if you look at the members of this thing, they, they're a distinguished panel, some, some smart people. Um, hopefully, he'll take their guidance and do the right thing um, and not use their their what they tell him to do sinister things to help, you know, yeah. the farmers defeat the uh, the rules. I mean, if you think about it, like there are a lot of really big environmental issues playing out in the political world from the agriculture issues in Northwest Ohio with the Maumee Valley and, and the harmful algal bloom to the windbreaker wind turbines. And yeah, I mean, I think if we have an independent panel that's going to give opinions like that sounds really promising. All right. Well, good for Dave Yost. We've, we've been giving him a lot of good fours lately, so <laughs> it's it's nice to see. We, you know, Frank LaRoche should take some lessons from Dave Yost and do the right thing. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What do some First Amendment scholars think of Cleveland's trying to apply sign and nuisance laws 
to prohibit the projection of illuminated political messages on downtown buildings. Chris Arnaski, this is one of my favorite stories of the past week because it's really not clear whether this is illegal or not. It all comes down to somebody projected a Trump-Biden illuminated sign on Tower City the night of the presidential debate. And there's a great debate going on about whether this is legal or not. Actually, it says Biden-Harris. Don't look Biden for Harris. that ticket on the... <laughs> what did I say? If you're, if you're early voting today, you're not voting for Biden-Trump or Trump. <laughs> it's, it's, Trump's, it's Biden-Harris or Trump-Pence. Those are your choices. Uh, Thank you, Chris. <laughs> no, the... This is interesting. It's like anything with the First Amendment. You you go, is this right or wrong? And then and, and people go, I don't know. It could be, could not be. So, yeah, what happened was, is the United Steelworkers have claimed responsibility for projecting Biden-Harris onto Terminal Tower. This started last Tuesday, right ahead of the uh, the debate here. And uh, Courtney Astolfi, I believe, looked at or spoke to a couple of, of legal experts about this, a couple of law professors. Who basically said that they're they're the K and D management who owns the building has cited a handful of laws which they you know they say that the city prohibits posting or sticking any advertisement poster or sign or handbill on any private building or structure without the owner's permission. The city has a criminal mischief law that prohibits people from moving or defacing or damaging or destroying property. And there's a state law that requires most political communications to be clearly identified by the issue that uh, or by the entity that issued them. But the issue here is, is, is the building defaced? Is this a can you can you make that claim in court? And and and, you know, what what's interesting about this is the fact that there, nobody's trespassing on this property, on Terminal Towers property. This is being projected. You know, nobody knows where the origin of the projection is, I don't think. I, and, and so you can't make it. You can't make that argument. You can't make the argument that the building is being damaged in any way. And, and so, you know, it, it that's where the First Amendment gets sort of legally murky. You know, I you know, we talk about our rights a lot of time. As long as we're on public property and shooting photos, we can do that and people can't stop us. And it's the same with this. Is there. Is there any real thing in the law that says it's illegal to project onto a building like this? And and thus far, the answer is no. And, but, and, but and it's, me, but let's talk about this a little bit, though. If I came to your house mm -hmm. and shined a light in your window and you called the police, mm -hmm. I, I, they would come over and say, you're harassing him. You're mm -hmm. you know, you're 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 annoying him. You're standing in the street causing him distress. Or if I put an obscene word on your house as everybody who drove by saw it, it would seem like you would have a legitimate complaint against me, that it's mm -hmm. your house and it's being used to put out a message that you vehemently disagree with. I, it just, it, I guess what I, I guess this just feels wrong that you shouldn't be able to use my property mm -hmm. to put up messages I disagree with. It's just, what is the law that you violate if you do that other okay. than harassment? So, so I think the difference here is, is that, the United Steelworkers probably have deep pockets to fight this and say, you know, and take this to court. As a private citizen, you'd probably go, nah, okay, I'll take it down because you don't have the amount of money to go and, and create a a legal challenge to you shining a light into your neighbor's window. You know, you're, you're probably going to be like, oh, they what? did agree to take it down. They, right. they did say, hey, all right, we'll take it down. Right. But, but it, you know, from a First Amendment perspective, there's nothing – there's nothing in state law that specifically prohibits this. So it makes it difficult to argue. Look, somebody has been projecting 
you know, COVID death st- statistics on President Trump's hotel in Washington, D.C. I mean, they've been projecting stuff on his hotel for months, even years, and it hasn't stopped. So, you know, you have to think if somebody was going to challenge that, it would be, you know, a very image conscious president. But but, you know, I, I think this is a, this is a very difficult thing. And I think the legislatures would have to actually go in and, and create a law against doing this. and then. It would it would have to go through the courts and see if it it passes must First Amendment muster and and it's a difficult question as as are most First Amendment cases. Yeah, it's a great debate. Good 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 thing to talk about. I I am fascinated by how this could work out. Yeah, let's let's I talk about think, free speech while we can. Like I do <laughs> I do think Cleveland's claim that you could use sign ordinances and criminal mischief ordinances is complete hooey. There, there is no specific law in the books that would prohibit what's going on. But, you know, the, the law department in Cleveland is kind of known for getting stuff wrong. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. The former chief of a Cleveland community development corporation is going to prison for embezzling a lot of money. Chris Ranowski, I'm always amazed at the public corruption cases that come out because they get lots of publicity. People end up going to prison. They're disgraced for life. But here we have another one. What did she spend all the money on? So uh, U.S. District Judge Dan Polster sentenced Tamiko Parker of Cleveland. She is the former director of the Collinwood Nottingham Villages Development Corporation, and she was sentenced to 33 months in federal prison for stealing $164,000 that she now must repay uh, from the CDC. And she pleaded guilty last year to theft concerning programs receiving federal funds. And the U.S. attorney said that she took the money between 2014 and 2016 and used it for, you know, paying off her credit card and debts to making lavish purchases. Uh, Let's see, she went to uh, Harley Davidson, the Horseshoe Casino and Victoria's Secret and also spent nonprofit money on trips to Atlantic City and Las Vegas. And she also bought appliances for her house, makeup from Sephora, TJ Maxx, and furniture from Pier 1, according to prosecutors. So actually, the number that she spent is, uh, it says here, probably $195,000 that her restitution is to pay back most of that. So yeah, this is just a, a, another example of where the CDCs uh, end up being sort of a pocket for wrongdoing and well some of them do great work yeah I mean, they're, of course they're, you know they they fill in gaps for city services but uh, you know so it's a kind of a special level of bad to harm an agency that's really there to to help the neighborhood to help restore properties and things like that and um it's just it's a bit surprising that somebody would so cavalierly pillage the funds of a of a small nonprofit that's trying to do the right thing and now disgraced. I mean, we'll spend time in prison. We'll carry this a long way. And, you know, we have a right to be forgotten. It does not apply to corruption cases. People (laughs) will be finding stories about her for a good long time. So you're listening to this week in the CLE. With movie theaters closing and no end in sight for the coronavirus pandemic, what is the Cleveland International Film Festival planning for its event next spring? which was supposed to be held in Playhouse Square in its entirety for the first time. Laura Johnston, they made this announcement yesterday. I don't really think it's that much of a surprise, but what are they going to do? It's going virtual. So they decided way ahead of time, even though it's in April, that they can't really have it in person. 
So they had a meeting at the end of uh, September and they determined it would be the safest option due to the pandemic. Now their first in-person festivities are going to be in 2022. Um, So the festival is still going to include hundreds of films and other virtual events for 14 days in April. They're going to have viewer conversations and Q&A sessions with filmmakers. Uh, They'll have a podcast that will be there. They actually had a lot of success with their virtual event last April. But this, you know, is an issue that a lot of events are facing, even if they're planning for next year, because no one knows. And also the news came out over, I think, Sunday that all regal movie theaters are closing for the foreseeable future with no end date, because we just don't know when people are going to want to go see movies again. Yeah, if ever. I mean, everybody has a big screen TV and a sound system and they won't get COVID if they sit at home and do it usually. All right. You're listening to this week in the CLE. President Donald Trump says he is on the mend and feels better than he has in 20 years. But if the coronavirus had taken his life before the election, what would have happened with the election? Jane Cahoon, we we published this story yesterday and Trump supporters, a few of them criticized this, saying that it was hoping for his demise or wishful thinking or something silly. And I've gotten back to them to say, look, folks, this is what we do. We ask questions. People are going to start voting today. And if they're casting a ballot for Donald Trump, they're going to be wondering if something were to happen, does it count? That's what journalists do. It's our job. It doesn't have any judgment. So with that preamble, (laughs) what did we find out would happen if something were to happen to a president this close to the election? Right. Well, thanks. I don't have to defend the story. I can just talk about it. Uh, Pete Krause looked into this and determined, well, at this point, the the ballots in Ohio have already been printed, and that's the case in many other states. So it would be too late to change those. So Trump's name would still be on the ballot, and those who wanted to vote for him could still do so. And then those votes would be tabulated and, you know, to determine who wins each state and gets those states' electoral votes. But then it gets a little you know, complicated because obviously a deceased candidate cannot serve. So the Republican National Committee would be able to select a replacement for Trump if he died before the election. But that designee would have to secure the 270 electoral votes to become president. And, you know, each state has different, it it wouldn't be, you know, necessarily a guaranteed each state has different rules on on whether the electors can have to vote for somebody or can can stray from that. And it's also not a given that it would be Mike Pence because they they could they could choose someone else. I mean, obviously, if Trump died, Mike Pence would be sworn in as as the president. But, you know, they they could choose him or they could choose somebody else to, you know, to serve as that's kind of frightening when you think yeah. about it. I mean, there was a period in the 1970s where we had both a president and a vice president that no voter had picked. Gerald Ford was the vice president after Spiro Agnew was corrupt and went out. And so he was chosen as a replacement. And then when Nixon left, he picked the vice president in Rockefeller. And it was weird because we were led by two, two people who we never had a chance to vote on. And that's that's what the result would be here. If the Republican National Committee is doing the selecting, it's not the choice of the people. Anyway, we hope that the president is telling the truth, that he's on the mend. It was pretty frightening to watch him gasping for air on the uh, balcony yesterday. I've had pneumonia and it looked like he was in some distress, but he says he's on the mend and getting better. And we hope it's true. The suffering is uh, is on the wane. 
You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We're going to have to end it there because the last question we were going to talk about is all the ways people can cast ballots, and there's no way we could do that in short order. <laughs> so so we'll, we'll, we'll have stories today about how voting is going. We're trying to set up one-stop place on the site where, where we can collect everything we've reported on this because people keep sending us questions that we've already answered. It's hard to find those answers with all the different stories we've done. We've got to bring some order to it. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back with another episode tomorrow. 